Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Improving Interprofessional Management and Clinical Outcomes with PARP Inhibitors for Advanced Ovarian Cancer. PARP Inhibitor-Related Adverse Events and Team-Based Care is developed by Axis Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from GSK, Merck Sharpendome LLC, and AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity titled Improving Interprofessional Management and Clinical Outcomes with PARP Inhibitors for Advanced Ovarian Cancer, PARP Inhibitor-Related Adverse Events, and Team-Based Care. I'm Dr. Kathleen Moore, and I'm the Virginia Curley K. Chair in Developmental Therapeutics and the Deputy Director of the Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City. Today, I'll be reviewing potential treatment-related complications that may occur with PARP inhibitor-based therapy, share decision-making strategies, and case examples highlighting the integration and management of first-line maintenance treatment with PARP inhibitors in advanced ovarian cancer. And I'll just remind you that there was a part one where we discussed the efficacy around PARP inhibitors as first-line maintenance and team-based management strategies around how you select PARP inhibitors. Key considerations that came out of the part one, just as a review, is the unfortunate fact that we can't screen for ovarian cancer yet. And because of that, most patients present with advanced stage disease, stage three, four disease, and Despite initially exquisite responses to platinum-based chemotherapy in combination with surgery, we really do expect the vast majority of our patients will relapse. And once relapsed, we can no longer expect cure. Now, what we can expect is that we have and continue to develop many lines of active chemotherapy. And so we are prolonging, I believe, the overall time that patients with ovarian cancer live, but they are spending the majority of that time on some sort of therapy. And I think it goes without saying that multiple lines of chemotherapy, repeated lines, is associated with cumulative toxicity, less benefit. Every subsequent line of therapy, the patient has more tumor, and so they're more disease-related side effects as well. And so just quality of life can decline up until the end where many of our patients will pass away from carcinomatous ileus. And so our best intervention there to try and prevent that or just prolong that away as long as possible is a screening, which we can't do yet. But until then, cure more patients in the front line or really, really markedly improve progression-free survival in the front line and really push off the subsequent therapies to the future. And the best opportunity to do that is with um, use of PARP inhibitors, especially amongst biomarker-selected populations. PARP inhibitors, specifically with BRCA-associated cancers, really are the first intervention where we have an inkling that we are impacting survival and, more importantly, moving more patients into the cure fraction. So currently, PARP inhibitor approvals in frontline include lap-rib monotherapy only for those patients with BRCA-associated cancers Olaparib plus bevacizumab in patients whose tumors are homologous recombination deficiency test positive. So that includes BRCA, but also those BRCA wild type HRD test positive. Meraparib is approved in all comers, BRCA, BRCA wild type HRD test positive, and HRD test negative. Those are the three FDA approved PARP inhibitors in the front line. But I will mention that based on the Athena mono data, rucaparib is NCCN listed based on its very consistent efficacy and safety profile, which we're not going to talk a lot about today. 
in all comer populations as well, very similar to norepinephrine, but it is not as of yet FDA approved. So that's sort of where we are in terms of medications that are available for you to use. And again, if you want details of that, please refer to the part one of this series. What we're going to talk about today is how to team-based management strategies mitigate PARP inhibitor-related adverse events. And so we'll start with Olaparib, and I'm showing you just a reminder of the schema for Solo One, which was the first study to bring PARP inhibitor maintenance into the frontline treatment of women with ovarian cancer here and those with BRCA-positive tumors and patients in response to their frontline chemotherapy or randomized two-to-one to receive two years of Olaparib or placebo. This slide really takes you through kind of the high-level overview of treatment-emergent adverse events. And when I look at a new therapy, the last three rows from this table are kind of the first things I look at before I look at the individual adverse events. I really want to know how often does whatever drug I'm using need to be interrupted due to an adverse event? How often do I have to dose reduce it? And the most important thing to me is how often does a patient just say, I don't care if this is working, but I am not taking this medication. So outside of progression, when does someone say I'm not taking it? So those are kind of the things I look at that give me a sense of how well tolerated a drug might be for a patient. And so this is what you can see for Olaparib and then versus placebo. You have dose interruption and about 50% of patients on Olaparib. And I actually tell patients that upfront. If certain time we're going to need to interrupt here and there because of an adverse event. And I think that's important to do, and that's why I like to know this information, because sometimes patients get nervous, like they want to take a break, and sometimes they do, and then they feel guilty because they feel like they've harmed themselves. But on the Solo One study, which had phenomenal outcomes, half the patients had to take at least one interruption, and they still did great. So I like to know that information. 50% of the time, patients have to interrupt. But interruption doesn't equate to reduction. So only a little less than 29% needed a dose reduction. And then importantly, only a little less than 12%, 11.5% stopped Olaparib because of treatment emergent adverse events. So that is the kind of high level safety profile for Olaparib. Now we can look at some of the more common class effects of all the PARP inhibitors really. So this will be a theme you see as we talk about the PARP inhibitors, common but low grade gastrointestinal toxicities, some heme toxicities, and fatigue. Those are the class effects. And then we'll talk about some of the outliers. So here you see that in um, table form, nausea, fatigue, and vomiting. So let's look at nausea, which is incredibly common. 77% of patients report any great nausea. It happens really fast. And I tell patients this too, and I counsel them. It's a few days in and they feel queasy. But 75% of them had a resolution date. So really of 25% that have some ongoing nausea, but for most patients, it does resolve. But it takes a little bit of time. You're about six weeks in. And that's that accommodation period but, you know, over which time patients get used to the medication. We get used to the mitigation strategies that they need, and they kind of level out six to eight weeks. Fatigue, a little bit different. Really common. 63% with any grade. It's about three weeks in that you start to see the fatigue. Only about 50% have resolution of this, which I think is important to tell patients about. Now, they do accommodate just like the GI toxicities over that first six to eight weeks, but it's always there. It's this sort of low-grade but pervasive tiredness that patients do learn to work around and work through, but setting that expectation that that's normal and expected is really important for your patient. 
on the median duration until it does really resolve, if it's going to resolve, is almost four months. So it takes a little bit of time for this to resolve. Vomiting is not as common, but does happen. It tends to be early in onset, and then we get it mitigated. But 40% of patients on solo one reported some vomiting, predominantly grade one or two. This was a little later in onset, about six weeks in. About 40% had resolution, and it resolves pretty quickly because, of course, we intervene with antiemetics. So we can turn these around relatively quickly. And the other common set of adverse events with PARP inhibitors or hematologic. And so we talk about anemia, neutropenia, and sarmacytopenia. Across the PARP inhibitors, the most common amongst the three is anemia. And that's certainly what you see here. So 40% of patients on Olaparib have some degree of anemia. You'll see it usually as they come in for that pre-chemo visit before their third cycle. So it's about two months in. Most of them do come down a grade. And it may not ever completely resolve because you, know, you may kind of have someone that's running at grade one anemia for the rest of the time on the PARP inhibitor or on a lap rib, but it does tend to come down a bit. It was a higher grade through mitigation strategies, it comes down to a low grade. So this is really your most common for lap rib, the most common hematologic side effects. And I'll show you some more granular data about that in a moment. Neutropenia and thrombocytopenia are very much less common. So 23% neutropenia, 11% thrombocytopenia, any grade. But these tend to be low grade, like high grade neutropenia or thrombocytopenia is really, really uncommon with olaparib. And that's different than norepirib, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The onset for neutropenia is about the same as anemia. You see it just under the two month mark and you will see resolution over time. And with dose modifications, for neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, you see a sort of a similar trend with not complete resolution, but resolution down to the lowest grade possible. And then it sort of just runs in a stable over the course of exposure to the elaborate. But again, these are usually grade one sorts of events. This is work that my colleague, Dr. Nicoletta Colombo presented, and it just sort of shows you graphically over time what to expect. And sometimes I'll show these to patients just so they sort of can see graphically what we look at over time. This is over the 24 months of exposure to olaparib. This is nausea. Very common in those first two months. You're almost 70%. The vast majority are grade one though. And then a little bit of two and like a smidgen of three. So this is mainly a grade one, two toxicity and not a lot of grade two. And nausea is a low grade by definition, but still very uncomfortable for patients. And by that fourth dose, we're really eliminating a lot of those grade twos. And so most of our patients by about four to five months in are running along 30-ish percent of patients with grade one nausea that they learn to accommodate around with diet interventions. Sometimes they need pharmacologic intervention that we'll talk about, but most patients don't need that ongoing and they just learn to modify diet and expectations for the length of time that they are on this medication. And do the same thing with anemia, where you do see we bump into grade three, and I'll show you this in a moment, but you see grade three in about 21% of patients on Olaparib, and it happens relatively quickly. You see those kind of bigger green bars at month three and month four, and that starts to dissipate as we either dose modify or correct underlying nutritional deficiencies like iron deficiency or folate, and then they reach the steady state that you can see kind of starting about seven to eight months. You know, it's about a 10 to 15% rate overall of anemia after that point, and predominantly grade one, which is greater than 10. But you do see a kind of fairly 
constant band of grade two, eight to 10 hemoglobin across that second year of use of a laparib that kind of sits right at that maybe five to 8% of patients sort of right in that band. And then just a few will pop up into the grade three zone in later lines of therapy, but we really see most of that early on. We mitigate, and we don't see a lot of it as a kind of cumulative effect over time, but we do have to watch for it. So there is ongoing monitoring for anemia with monthly labs. This is the management for some of these adverse events. And again, I'm coming back to non-hematologic nausea, fatigue, vomiting. So for nausea, as an example, we did supportive treatment in almost 60%. So this is usually anti-emetics. 17% of patients got a dose interruption for a few days though. And a lot of times this is all patients need and you can start them and get a full dose and they just sort of feel better and then they restart and they do okay. So that's a strategy. Only 5% needed a dose reduction for nausea and of those, well, of the total 3% of patients on solo one discontinued due to the nausea. Fatigue is harder to treat as all of you recognize. There's no magic pill for it because it's so multifactorial in what's causing it. Certainly the olaparib is causative. It does have a role, but it is synergistic in a negative way with other things that contribute to fatigue. And we'll talk about that when we get to some of the case examples. So it is harder to treat because of that multifactorial etiology. But you give supportive treatment. We had about 7% with supportive treatment. The most common intervention was really giving patients a small break and interruption, letting them feel a little bit better than restarting. And then 9% got a dose reduction and 4% discontinued due to fatigue. Vomiting, 27% was supportive treatment. 24% got a dose interruption. Probably we were giving them antiemetics. Then we restart no dose reductions, and two patients discontinued due to the vomiting. Then you see the rates for resolution below, very high rates for resolution of nausea and vomiting, and not insubstantial really for fatigue and asthenia. You're above 60% recovery on olaparib, so we are improving things with our mitigation strategies, but you do have roughly 40% of our patients on olaparib with some degree, likely low grade, but they're fatigue for the duration of their experience on olaparib. And you can see at the very bottom row, the incidence of grade three or higher events that are non-hematologic is really, really low. Like really almost should be a never event. So if it happens, you should question sort of what else might be going on because it's so uncommon to have grade three or higher nausea and vomiting. We do see the grade three fatigue at few patients, 4%, but look at the placebo group, it's 2%. So there are other things that can cause fatigue that we just need to pay attention to as well. Now, if we look at the same sort of data, though, with hematologic adverse events, it looks a little bit different. Top row is just the same rates of all grade of hematologic side effects, again, anemia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia. For anemia, supportive treatment is very common. 71% of patients got some kind of supportive treatment, either a blood transfusion or addition of iron, either oral or injectifer or replacement of folate, those sorts of interventions, you know, depending on the etiologies of the anemia. But a high proportion of the patients who have anemia, which is 40% had anemia and 57% of that 40% got a dose interruption, which is per protocol. So if you had anemia on this protocol, if you dropped less than 10, we had to dose interrupt until we had that recovered. Very common interruptions very common reductions. Again, that was per protocol. 44% of those with anemia ended up with a dose reduction. 
only 6% discontinued. This was usually due to kind of recurrent episodes of anemia. Neutropenia, supportive treatment was given at about 18%, interruption in 50%, and that was per protocol of patients with neutropenia, which is only 23%. So 50% of 23% had to interrupt, 17% of 23% had to dose reduce, and then very few discontinuations. And you can see thrombocytopenia is similar because really there's not a lot of support treatment you can do for thrombocytopenia other than a transfusion. Interruptions were your most common intervention. You can see below the recovery and resolution for all of these is quite high, really because if you didn't recover at least to a grade one, we couldn't restart you on therapy. So this is to be expected per protocol. And then you did have roughly 10-ish percent of our anemia and neutropenia that at the time of study closure had not resolved. Patients with grade three or greater events, which is really where you're like, mm, what's going on with this medication from a hematologic standpoint, it's 22% for anemia. So this is the most common hematologic side effect, both for all grades, but also grade three and higher is anemia. That is the hematologic side effect you see with the lap rib. So 22% grade three or higher, 9% grade three or higher neutropenia, and 1% grade three or higher thrombocytopenia. So very, very uncommon to have high-grade neutropenia and thrombocytopenia on monotherapy olaparib. So if you see this, you see this repetitively, this is something that can happen, but it is unusual. And so your antennas should go up maybe about the robustness of that patient's bone marrow to remain on study. This is just another nice graphic showing the kind of tolerability of olaparib over time. The blue bars are patients that started on the full dose, which is 300 milligrams twice a day, and ended on that dose. You can see it's right about 65%. The orange bars are those that got one little dose reduction to 250 BID. So if you look at 300 to 250, which is pretty close to full dose, you're at 80% dose compliance. And then you had about 20% of patients that needed to come down to 200 milligrams BID, which was the smallest dose per protocol. But I think the point here is just to say the majority of patients who start on 300 twice a day finish on 300 twice a day. So this is a well-tolerated mitigations with mitigation strategies. And I made a comment about bone marrow just because we are always worried and watchful for treatment-related myeloid neoplasms. And of course, we say MDS, AML, but there's a myriad of these treatment-related myeloid neoplasms that we watch for we watch for them long-term. And so we've seen them in the recurrent setting, sometimes at kind of surprisingly high frequencies, especially amongst our BRCA population. And so this is of great interest as we've moved PARP into the front line. And across the studies, the rate has been very low. So these are the three cases as a study completion or solo one, a little less than 2% of patients had developed a treatment-related myeloid neoplasm. You can see the duration of elaborate therapy in days listed in that middle and the time to AML onset after stopping the elaborib. There's not been a clear pattern in any of the studies of frontline PARP inhibitor other than the rate is really low and there probably is some pre-existing vulnerability, but we're not seeing a tremendous uptick when we use it in the frontline as opposed to what we saw in the recurrent setting. And why is that? Well, at least with solo one, and I think we're seeing the same thing in the other studies is that there's a lot of patients on solo one that have not recurred yet, like 45%. So they've not gotten any other therapy. And one of the major risk factors, as we all know, of treatment-related myeloid neoplasms is repeated exposure to DNA-damaging agents such as platinum, which is a key drug in ovary. Our patients may get this many, many times. 
But when you have such a high fraction of patients who haven't recurred, haven't gotten subsequent lines, that may explain the lower rate that we are seeing. Also, unlike recurrent setting where you treat to progression, the front line, wherever we're using PARP inhibitors, we're using them for a set amount of time and then we stop. And that may also be important. Time will tell. But this is our current rate. It remains low, but it still has to be on our radar, always watchful for patients at risk. So that's solo one. What happens when you add bevacizumab to a lab and when you bring it into an all-comer population? Remember what I'll just tell you up front, we really haven't seen differences in side effects in BRCA versus non-BRCA, germline BRCA populations. So I'm not going to kind of separate that other than just to make that statement. Otherwise, we're just looking at the addition of bevacizumab. So this is the Paola study. Just to remind you, all comers stratified by BRCA in response to frontline platinum-based chemotherapy with bevacizumab, randomized two to one to bevacizumab for 15 cycles and a lap for two years or placebo for two years plus bevacizumab for 15 cycles. So basically a lap versus BEV. So let's look at the most common adverse events. This is a tornado plot. Labrib BEV versus BEV, and this should look very similar other than the hypertension. You see very common, but low grade GI and fatigue. So fatigue's 53%, 5% grade three. Nausea is 53%, actually lower than what we saw in solo, which is interesting, but still pretty common. 2% grade three and up, and then vomiting 22%. And that's what you see roughly with Olaparib. So that didn't change and didn't get worse with the addition of Bevacizumab. What you do see is the hypertension here, 46% of patients with hypertension, 19% of which were grade three or higher. Interestingly, in the placebo plus bevacizumab, it was both of those were higher, 60%, 30%, which none of us can really explain. To be honest, it just may be spurious, but I think we can certainly say that there's not synergistically more hypertension when you combine olaparib and bevacizumab. Those rates of bevacizumab-induced hypertension just look like what we see with monotherapy bevacizumab. And then you can see the rest of the adverse events here honestly look quite similar between the placebo and the lapro group. So a lot of this is just background symptoms that we see with ovarian cancer. And these are the adverse events of special interest for lapro in general, and they were just highlighted in the Paula study, treatment related myeloneoplasms, again, 1.1% versus 0.4% in the placebo arm. So again, we're still running less than 2% with these frontline studies. Paula, and we looked at this in solo as well, looked at secondary malignancies that were not hematologic, like breast cancer and lung cancer and pancreas, other things associated with BRCA. And it's because there was sort of this theory that if you use PARP inhibitor on the front line, then maybe patients with BRCA would be less likely to get other cancers. I don't think we've proven that yet. So I wouldn't say that. It's certainly not more. So you see very equal distribution of new primary malignancies in the two arms here, and it's very low. And then we do just like with every targeted drug, there's a risk of pneumonitis and interstitial lung disease. With PARP inhibitors, it's there. It's about 1%. So low, but something we need to be mindful for if our patients have new ground glass opacities or patchy infiltrates or fibrous linear changes. If you see that and or your patient has symptoms of respiratory symptoms, so you should be thinking about pneumonitis because we do see it rarely, but something to watch. Now back to those sort of high-level safety signals that I like to look at. Here's dose interruption, reduction, and discontinuation. Again, here comparing SOLA1, which I've already shown you. So that's on the left-hand side. 
And now we're looking at Paola. So when you use two drugs in the maintenance, how does this change? The median duration of exposure is a little bit lower in Paola, but remember this had a lot of patients that didn't have BRCA and so their risk is higher. So they may have progressed sooner than those with BRCA mutations. So the median duration of exposure is a little bit different between two studies, 25 versus 17 months. Dose interruptions are very similar though. About 50% of patients need a dose interruption. Dose reductions, 28% in solo, 41%. So it is a little higher in Paola. And then treatment discontinuations was about double, 11.5% and then to 20% for Paola 1, which is a little bit surprising to me, but we did see higher rates, still not huge compared to other interventions. But I do think supply a variety of reasons why patients chose to discontinue for reasons other than progression. So it's hard to say what drove this, but there is something with the doublet that's a little tougher. And so we have to keep that in mind when we're sort of monitoring somebody who's on Olaparabev versus just Olaparab monotherapy. Here's again, just a couple more comparison slides. And remember, these are different populations. So just different studies, different time periods, but just to kind of give you some benchmarking, dose reductions, again, 28% versus 41%. Dose interruptions, very similar. And dose discontinuations were higher, 12 versus 20%. Hematologic toxicities, really similar. So about 39% versus 41% anemia, Grade three is 22 and 17%. And you can look at neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, very similar. And then of course, hypertension is unique to bevacizumab and you can see the rates there at 46 and 19%. And that's just nice for benchmarking for your patients. So that's the elaborate story. What about norepirate? So let's talk about the PRIMA trial. PRIMA was another, just like Paula, was an all-comer study and patients had to be in very good response to their frontline platinum-based chemotherapy with or without surgery, and they were stratified by homologous recombination deficiency testing. So it was two-to-one randomization to norepirope or placebo for three years, and primary input was progression-free survival, first in the HRD test positive group, which includes BRCA, but also includes that 20% or BRCA wild-type HRD. And if that's positive, which it was, so we went through that part one, then you roll the alpha to the intention to treat arm and look at that, which they did. And of course that was positive as well. These are the adverse events from Prima. And I'm showing you the same kind of slide that I did before. If you look at the bottom four rows, you can see they're a little bit different order, but dose interruption was really common. About 80% of patients on Prima needed a dose interruption. 18% on placebo, which is interesting, but 80% on the drug. Reductions happened in almost that exact amount, mainly because this was related to platelets. So this is a little bit of a different ratio than we saw with the labyrinth. 80% dose interruption, 71% dose reduction, but only 12% of patients discontinued due to treatment emergent adverse events. So even though the interruptions and reductions were much, much higher, the mitigation strategies that were put in place kept patients on study at the same proportion as we saw in monotherapy olaparib, which is interesting. So that's sort of just to give you a little bit of a head-to-head of what we saw on Prima as compared to the SOLA1 study. Um, I think I have a slide to show you that a little bit more. As we said, the rate of discontinuations was really relatively low, very similar to olaparib, but we did see a lot of interruptions and reductions. And why was that? Predominantly because of the platelets. And so what happened during the course of Prima is that, and I'm going to show you this in a few slides, it's a little bit backwards, 
But it was known that we were seeing a lot of high-grade thrombocytopenia. And so there was a lot of interest in figuring out who was at risk and why. And an analysis was done of the NOVA study, which is the study that was done in platinum-sensitive recurrent disease, which was actually one of the first maintenance studies, actually the first maintenance study, phase three, to be presented in 2016 and led to the first approval of maintenance part shortly thereafter. But it had a high rate of thrombocytopenia, high rate of high-grade thrombocytopenia. And they discovered that this was related to the baseline patient platelet count and baseline patient weight. And so they incorporated, after doing a lot of work, they incorporated that into the PRIMA study, which was two-thirds of the way accrued when this amendment came in, to change from fixed starting dose, which is called FSD, to individualized starting dose, which is called ISD. So it is an unequal proportion of the study, but it was important to do from a safety standpoint. So on the top of the figure, the top figure on the left-hand side, you can see the overall population, all patients included, any treatment adverse event, 100%, we see that in everything, dose interruptions, 80%, dose reduction, 71%, and then discontinuations, 14%. Once we started the individualized starting dose, so this is only 255 patients of that 728, you can see that there's a little bit nudge down in the dose interruptions that went from 80 to 72%. Dose reductions went from 71 to 62%. The treatment discontinuations remained about the same. The mitigation strategies that were successful before continued to be. So a little bit of a signal that what they had done had worked, but I'm going to show you a little more granularly kind of what they did. So again, on the far left is the overall population, all patients included. So most patients on the study were treated at a fixed starting dose, which is 300 milligrams once a day. In the middle of your slide, you can see the carve out of the patients who started at an individualized starting dose. What that meant is for patients that had no risk factors, they started at 300. For patients that had either weight less than 77 kilograms or platelets less than 150,000 at baseline, either one, they started at 200 milligrams and they didn't escalate. It was just 200 milligrams. So that's the individualized starting dose. So what you can see here is that the key adverse event for neuroparib, which is hybrid thrombocytopenia, went from 62% all grade fixed starting dose to 54% in grade three or four went from 40% for the whole population down to 22% with individualized starting dose, so cut in half. And you saw the same drops in high-grade anemia and neutropenia as well. The rest of the side effects stayed about the same. So the impact of fixed versus individualized starting dose really seems to be a hematologic one. So where that came from, just to remind you, came from the NOVA study, which was the second-line platinum-sensitive recurrent study that looked at neuroparib versus placebo following response to platinum in the recurrent setting, either first recurrence or second recurrence, wildly positive and became standard of care. And they saw a lot of grade three or higher thrombocytopenia, 33.8% had grade three or higher thrombocytopenia. And just like we saw early on in Prima, lots of dose interruptions, lots of dose reductions, but not a lot of discontinuations because even then their mitigation strategies worked, but really patients' platelets were dropping pretty quickly. And that's evidenced by this. This is, remember I showed you this for OLAP or frontline, where most of the patients stayed on your starting dose. It's like the opposite here. 
the starting dose of niraparib was maintained in 23% of patients. That's that light green. And about 40% of patients ended up at one level dose reduction, 200 milligrams. And about a little less than 40% ended up at two dose reductions at 100. And this was before fixed versus individualized starting dose. Everyone started at 300. So almost 40% had two dose reductions anymore. They'd have to come off. So clearly the drug was not tolerated for all patients at 300 milligrams. This is a lot of work that went into who was at risk. They did a lot of analyses. It would be super interesting to talk about, but a little beyond the scope of this talk. So I'm just going to go to this slide, which really breaks down the incidence of grade three, four thrombocytopenia by the two things that were shown to be important. And that's called weights and plates, body weight and baseline platelet count. So as you can see on the left-hand side, is the grade three, four thrombocytopenia events by month one, because this drop of platelets is a really early effect. You see it in month one by weight. And so you can see for those patients that were greater than 77 kilograms, the rate was 16%. Anybody less than 77 kilograms, the rate was close to double, it was 29%. And if they were really small individuals, like less than 58 kilograms, almost half of them had grade three or higher thrombocytopenia. So they made the cut point 77 kilograms. Similarly with thrombocytopenia from baseline platelet count for patients that had really robust platelets like greater than 270, the risk of getting down to grade three or four was still 20%, which is a little surprising when you're starting that high. But for patients less than 180 platelets at baseline, the rate was 42%, which is still, which is really high. So they dropped it actually to 150,000 to try and be very cautious about what your baseline platelet should be to get 300 milligrams. And they reapplied that analysis to the NOVA study. They said, okay, let's look at baseline and see everybody whose weight's greater than 77 kilograms and platelets are greater than 150,000. How did they do versus any of the patients had either one of those? So the patients that had neither risk factor had a 12% risk of high grade thrombocytopenia. And patients that had either of those, then the rate was 35%. So that's really what was driving it and why that became part of the label. So that's a very important thing just to have seared in your brain. If you're using niraparib, which is a very safe PARP inhibitor to use, you really have to look at the day you're starting the patient, what's that baseline weight? If it's less than 77 kilograms, she gets started at 200. You never try to escalate. And or if baseline platelets are less than 150,000, she starts at 200 milligrams and you never re-escalate. And then if they have problems, you drop them to 100. And if they have problems again, then you have to consider whether they can remain on a PARP and you maybe have to rotate to a different PARP. So let's move on to shared decision-making and management of adverse events, patients who are on the PARP inhibitors. This is the shared decision-making model, which I think we all do. You just didn't know there was a nice acronym for it. Seek your patient's participation in the process. Help your patient explore and compare the treatment options for her and maintenance. What are her values and preferences about oral versus infused medications? Once daily versus twice daily? Weekly labs versus every three-week labs? What's important to her and how do you align with that? And then you reach a decision and then continue to evaluate the decision you made ongoing. So this is the share decision-making model. So when we look at how you set someone up for success with a PARP inhibitor, really comes down to really selecting appropriate patients, those who have responded to frontline platinum, they understand how to take oral medications, and then you look at sort of the specific toxicity management 
And you really have to look for a couple things up front. Can they tolerate pills? There are some patients that cannot tolerate oral medications, and these cannot be crushed. And also, they can't have significant hepatic or renal dysfunction. There are modifications for Olaparib, at least with moderate renal dysfunction. And so it's important to pay attention to that and dose modify from the beginning appropriately. But significant hepatic, like a Billy greater than 1.5 times upper limit of normal or significant renal dysfunction, PARP inhibitors have not been tested and should not be used. We talked about the starting doses already, but just to remind you for Olaparib, they come as 100 milligram tablets or 150 milligram tablets. The starting full dose is 300 milligrams twice a day, so two tablets twice a day. If they have moderate hepatic impairment, not significant, but moderate, you start at 200 twice a day, and then moderate renal, similar, 200 twice a day. And the wrapper comes only in 100 milligram capsules. And so for patients who have neither low weight or low platelets, they take three capsules once a day. And if they have either of those risk factors, they take two tablets once a day. So it's 300, 200, 100 of the doses for Olaparib. You do have to be a little bit careful with Olaparib because there is the potential for CYP3A4 interactions. So use of CYP3A4 inhibitors can increase your Olaparib concentration. And so just reminders of what some of our CYP3A4 inhibitors are include um, the mycins or diltiazem or fluconazole or ciprofloxacin, which are not uncommon. So if your patient's taking any of these, remember to drop their dose while they're taking them, and then you can re-escalate. I think when you're starting someone on PARP inhibitor, setting expectations is really key. You really want to set expectations and mitigation strategies for fatigue, GI toxicities, hematologic toxicities, and then we'll talk a little bit more about AML MDS. Fatigue is really common, and we should kind of evaluate it it's like pain, like a vital sign. Patients often underreport it or they don't want to complain, but it's important to know if your patient's so fatigued, they're like not leaving the house. So it's important just to tell them that it's expected side effect of PARP inhibitors. It's the worst during the first six to eight weeks, and then it improves with time. And so sometimes if we just get them through those first two cycles, they start to feel better. But we do have to evaluate it and make sure it is getting better over time. And so we encourage self-reporting. And it's just really important to evaluate other causes that are contributing to the fatigue. And I'm not trying to create like the PARP is innocent. The PARP causes this. But if there's others of these in play, it's going to be worse. For example, if there's baseline anemia, if the patient has poor sleep hygiene, if the patient has undiagnosed or untreated depression, undiagnosed or untreated pain, undiagnosed and untreated hypothyroidism, all of those contribute to fatigue. And so if we sort of address all of those and are working on treating those, we can mitigate the severity of the fatigue as well as those other symptoms. So that's important. Treatment of fatigue is hard though, as I just said, that all these things are contributing. So if you address some of these other features, that is the treatment for the fatigue. Other things, non-pharmacologic interventions for patients, depending on their resources, can be massage therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, early involvement of supportive care for those of you in bigger centers that have that nice resource. It's not available everywhere, I know. Probably the most data though exists really for just physical exercise, which is 30 minutes of walking five of seven days. And it doesn't even have to be 30 minutes all at once. It can be broken up over the day for patients who are really tired. But if they can use and maintain their lean body mass and their lower extremity, that at least 
prevent some of the worsening of fatigue. There are pharmacologic interventions. You can also just give a dose interruption for low-grade recurrent. Give them three or four days off. Let them feel better. And then you restarted the same dose. And if they're fine, they're fine. If it happens again, then you can consider a dose modification. But dose interruptions sometimes can be incredibly useful over the two years of a labyrinth. Grade three fatigue should launch a workup for what else is going on, number one. And if it really is the part you want to dose hold and then dose reduce. Nausea and vomiting also incredibly common. And so patient counseling is key. Symptoms are fast in terms of onset and they're the worst that first six to eight weeks. So again, if we can get them through that, they improve with time, patients accommodate to it and they actually can do quite well after. Some kind of tips and tricks, the rap rib, if you're using the rap rib, it's once a day. So you can administer at bedtime and even pre-dose with an anti-emetic. They take it at bedtime and they can sleep through the nausea. With the twice daily dosing, you can start patients off. I start my patients off with an anti-emetic for the first 30 to 45 days-ish. And if they're doing great, I'll start taking them off of that because no one wants to be on that many pills for two years. But I just don't like to have that cycle set that they're going to be nauseated. Others of my colleagues will just have script ready for their patient. And if at the first signs, they don't even have to ask. They just have the script that they can fill into it that way as well. All of those are fine. As long as you have a plan and your patient's comfortable with it so that they can rescue the symptom quickly because as we all know, nausea is just so disturbing. We don't want them to come off when we can mitigate this really effectively. And so you can see on the slide, want to rule out other causes. Now, this is usually the part I'm going to say, but make sure they don't have gastritis or other sorts of things. This is an early thing, like an early symptom. So somebody that's been on a part for a good amount of time, and then all of a sudden they come in with nausea, vomiting, there you really do want to be looking for another cause. So it's probably not the part at this point. So I'd be worried about something else going on. Dose interruptions are very helpful here as well. A few days off, let them feel better. You can start at the same dose. And if you have recurrent problems, you certainly have dose reduction options. Hematologic toxicities. So monitoring of these vary based on the drug. So for niraparib, when you start the medication, it has to be weekly CBCs, at least. And you want to do monthly salts just to look at the CMP and make sure you're not having anything peak with the creatinine or anything else, but CBCs you need weekly to make sure that the platelets aren't dropping. If you see those platelets start to drop, that patient needs to be held, and then you follow them a little more closely to make sure they're not still dropping and coming back up. So if you have someone dropping below 100, you hold. So this is one where like someone has to look at these labs. They cannot sit over the weekend because someone's platelets could be four. Now, if they get through that first four weeks fine and their platelets are stone cold fine, then you can back off and just do every 21 to 28 day labs with careful counseling that if they start to notice petechiae or anything, they're going to call you. If someone's platelets drop and you have to hold and then restart, you restart the weekly labs until they're stable for at least four weeks in a row. I usually do eight, to be honest, because I'm just nervous, but at least four weeks in a row. And then you can back off to monthly labs you know, for the remainder of the time on niraparib. For olaparib, you start with just every cycle labs every 21 or 28 days. And once they're fine for like six months, I'll usually just check them every three months from there. And we keep an eye on them with just the ability to call us if they're feeling fatigued or anything else. And we'll do a set of labs unscheduled at that point. Just really because the anemia here is the main side effect, but it doesn't appear to be cumulative. So once you have someone stable for many months, you really don't have to go as crazy 
with the labs with elaborate. With anemia, I do think it's important to rule out other causes at the beginning, depending on the part of the country you live and your patient population. Here in Oklahoma, we have a lot of nutritional deficiencies, like almost everyone is vitamin D deficient, iron deficient, pretty high rate of folate deficiency. So we do a panel up front and really just start trying to replace our patients almost prophylactically when we start PARP inhibitors and we're even trying to get it before chemo now. We're using injectifer instead of oral iron because of compliance issues and just trying to make sure that we have patients really teed up to be successful. It doesn't eliminate the nausea because again, elaborate causes anemia, but it can mitigate the grade. So someone that might have gotten a grade three because they're also iron deficient, maybe only drops to a one or a two, and then you can keep them dosing. So do consider testing for those up front and just make sure you have your patient really teed up to be successful. Neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, we talked about thrombocytopenia at length already for niraparib, anything less than 100 you need to hold. And I would say the same thing is true really for laparib. It's so uncommon that if you see platelets start to drop, you should hold and investigate. Neutropenia, grade one doesn't require intervention. Grade two, neutropenia requires interruption in consideration of what's going on because that's not common. And if you're confident that the patient's bone marrow is doing okay, restarting at the same dose versus a dose modification really depends on the rapidity of the drop. Is it repetitive? And sometimes I'll involve my heme colleagues to help me make those decisions. Anything with significant heme toxicity or recurrent heme toxicity warrants a referral to our hematology colleagues for evaluation. And that's really because we're worried about amyl MDS and also you know, patients who are at risk for it in the future and trying not to set them up for development of this. So we do have to make patients aware of the risk. So again, patients with prolonged hematologic toxicity should be referred for heme consultation plus minus the bone marrow biopsy. And at this point, other than just your gut, we don't have screening tests to identify patients at high risk. So we just have to kind of pay attention and have our antennas up as we watch the CBCs and diffs on our patients as they come in. So when we think about first-line therapy decisions for patients, we have to just consider multiple factors. Like what are the clinical characteristics of the disease? Did it respond to platinum? Did it not? What are the molecular characteristics? You know, does she have BRCA? Is that someone that 100% needs to be offered a PARP? Has she had HRD testing? What does that show? And then what's the best medication to really try and help our patients have a higher likelihood of cure and or the longest progression-free survival possible? The drug properties, the safety and efficacy, patient preferences regarding administration, drug interactions, other medications they're on, all these things have to be taken into consideration just along with the patient herself is kind of the center of how we make these decisions. So I wanted to take you through a couple examples of how you think about things. So this is patient A. She has BRCA1 mutation carrier. She has high-grade serous ovarian cancer. She's stage 3 she had primary surgery that was really good, got everything out, VA, small person, 78 kilograms. And she had some nausea with chemo, but otherwise did fine. She had six cycles of chemo as per standard of care. She's no evidence of disease. CA125 is normal. Baseline platelets are 240. And so she's going to get a partner to her. She's already asking about it because her medical literacy is quite high. And you talk to her about it, and she does not think she can do twice daily dosing. So she wants to do something once a day. She's now want to come in for other infusions because she wants to go back to work. So we're deciding on sort of monotherapy, heart inhibitor options. And I'm just putting this up here to remind you of the 
BRCA and solo, it's the whole study, but in Paula and Prima, the BRCA cohorts, which were 30% of each of the studies, so substantial cohort. And what the magnitude of benefit is for progression-free survival, we're talking about 60 to 70% reductions in the hazard of progression or death with use of a PARP. Bevacizumab alone is not an equitable option, unless you're giving it with a PARP, but it's not an option instead of a PARP. So with one stalet dosing, you're leaning towards Mirapirib and you're thinking about dosing and you're just remembering that we're using individualized starting dose here. And again, that's ISD. FSD is the fixed starting dose 300. And you're wondering, well, gosh, is that as effective? If I have to use individualized starting dose, am I just shortchanging her? And this analysis was done. It is very exploratory, but it has been done in a couple different ways. And the hazard ratio point estimates do look a little different. It actually looks a little better for individualized starting dose, probably because they could stay on therapy for longer. But the confidence intervals really overlap. So I think the take-home is that we certainly aren't losing efficacy by using individualized starting dose versus fixed starting dose. So the safer dosing is not less effective, and you should feel confident in using the right dose based on weights and plates. And the safety profile, again, this is just a summary slide just to remind you of Prima is on the purple, and then Solo is in red. Monotherapy is what she wants. She's not more combination therapy. These are not head-to-head studies. This is warning, warning, cross-trial comparison, but just so you can see common dose interruptions, dose reductions, but very few discontinuations due to adverse events. And with individualized starting doses, fewer interruptions and dose reductions still. Again, this is just more on Prima, which is what you're leaning towards with Neraparib for this particular patient. With individualized starting dose, which is kind of on the middle of the slide, you can see the rate of thrombocytopenia grade three or higher is only 19%. So it's still 19%. You still have to do the weekly labs. You still have to watch for it. But it's not 50%, which is what it was. This is just for BRCA with fixed starting dose. Anemia is about the same at 30%, 13% neutropenia. So far safer, but we still have to monitor As I mentioned early on, a lot of these studies had quality of life and patient-reported outcome components, which have been reported. I'm showing them to you here just in the BRCA population for Prima. And this is the FOSI and the EQ5D5L with no detriment to quality of life measures in Neraparib versus placebo. And then just to be fair and balanced, this is Solo1 and Paula, where they use different measures, admittedly. But again, no statistical signal that there's any difference in these quality of life measures with use of PARP versus placebo. For patient case study A then, when you're thinking about our maintenance, and I kind of already gave this away, you would never use active surveillance unless the patient wanted that, but that would not be what you would suggest. You would not suggest VEGF inhibitor monotherapy that is not equivalent. You could use VEGF inhibitor like BEV plus a PARP, but she doesn't want to come in. So your option really for her is a D, PARP inhibitor monotherapy, and you can use olaparib or neraparib. And based on her preferences for monotherapy dosing once a day, that would be neraparib on label. Okay, let's do a second one. This is patient B. She's BRCA wild type HRD. So she's homologous recombination deficient, but BRCA wild type. She had stage 3C disease, very extensive. She's 64 kilograms, another young patient. So she got neoadjuvant chemo with three cycles of paclitaxone carbo and an interval side reduction that unfortunately did not get it all out. She has residual disease. And then got six more cycles of chemotherapy because the provider thought she was very high risk. So in final imaging, after nine cycles of chemo, she has responded, but not as much as you'd want. She's a partial response. Her CO125 has come down, but still abnormal. 
baseline platelet counts 185,000. And remember, her baseline weight is 64 kilograms. She's done with chemo. She said nine cycles. She does not want any more chemo. And again, she's sort of done with us and doesn't want to come in for a lot of more procedures. Solo one is not here because it was all BRCA. This is BRCA wild type HRD. So what I'm showing you here is the Prima HRD BRCA wild type subgroup. This is not an analytic part of the study. It's a subgroup. And so in Paola, BRCA wild type HRD. These are subgroup analyses, but they're very consistent. Hazard ratio of 0.5 and 0.43 of PARP versus no PARP. So it does look like the benefit of PARP in this particular population, while not analytic, is pretty significant. And Paola really tells us again that bevacizumab alone isn't an appropriate selection in this particular patient population. And on the bottom, and I can, I'm just showing you the bevacizumab data, but really this isn't an ideal option you know, for this patient for her molecular subtype. This is the safety profile for Neraparib versus Olaparib bevacizumab. Those are her two on-label options in all comers. So this is patient I was showing you before just in BRCA. So this is all comers. Just to show you the comparison, we've already kind of gone through the differences in interruptions, reductions, and discontinuations between Prima and Paola, but just to show it to you again, and this is just some of more granular grade three or higher adverse events. If you're looking at Neraparib in the BRCA wild type individualized starting dose, because remember she's less than 77 kilograms, so she would be ISD. Her rate of thrombocytopenia grade three or higher could be as high as 24%, anemia is 18%, Neutropenia is 16% as compared to 2% thrombocytopenia, 17% anemia, and 6% neutropenia with the Powell regimen. So the hematologic toxicities, and these are all subgroups, so there may be some influence there, but just ballparking. They are higher, even with individualized starting dose. So you have to keep that in mind. You keep an eye on her. Again, just quality of life here in a different population. This is specifically in the bracket wild type HRD population the quality of life, again, showing no detriment for neraparib. And similarly in Paola, and then I'm showing you just the bevacizumab data. We really haven't, in a maintenance setting, fortunately, knock on wood, done anything that impairs quality of life to date. For this patient, so she's BRCA wild type HRD, but had a partial response. She's very high risk for recurring if you do not. But she may elect that. She may just be like, I'm done, and I want you to leave me alone until I don't feel good. Some patients choose that, and that's okay. That's shared decision-making, but I wouldn't put active surveillance forward as like an equivalent option, but if the patient opts for that, of course, we honor that and take care of them. Bevacizumab monotherapy is an option for her, though, but based on the evidence, isn't an equivalent option to a PARP inhibitor-containing therapy. So options C and D for her are the kind of on-label options. She could get Bevlaparib or she could get Neraparib with her molecular subtype. And those would all be on-label, as would Bevacizumab, but I just don't think it's an equivalent sort of option. So that's what I would be discussing with her, either Neraparib or Olaparib, Bevacizumab. And then patient C is a little older. She's 63. She's 82 kilograms. She has 3C disease, had a primary surgery that was unfortunately not terrible, but they just couldn't get everything out. She has residual disease, not bulky, but residual disease, which we don't like. The tumor is sent off and she's homologous recombination deficiency test negative. She gets six cycles of chemo, still has a partial response, but she feels good. Feels so much better. C1 to is normal. Platelets are 170,000. She still works. Working actually is her key to insurance. She's very worried about not being able to work. She brings a lot of ideas in for what 
she could come on for maintenance therapy, but is interested in maintenance. She's not interested in just doing nothing. So there's a balance. But HRD test negative is hard. So this is the data. Prima, of course, shows a moderate benefit. Hazard ratio is 0.68, about 32% reduction in the hazard of progression in this population with norepra versus nothing. Paula, part BEV versus BEV did not show any difference. So can you say BEV and PARP are equivalent? No, but it's probably not inferior. I think I'll say that without data. But these are probably her options. PARP versus bevacizumab monotherapy. Safety in this group isn't any different than any of the other populations. So I'll just say that you're going to use compare PARP versus bevacizumab. There are significant differences in adverse events with hematologic adverse events being predominant for niraparib and then the GI, of course. And then for bevacizumab, it's hypertension. So they're very different side effect profiles, which for her may be the way she picks one or the other. This is really an area of clinical equipoise. Just like everything else I've shown you, there's no difference in quality of life between niraparib and placebo in the homologous recombination deficiency test negative population, either by the FOCI, either the time to symptom worsening or the health utility index. Neither of them were significantly different. And then there was additional work done from Prima in this particular patient population none of which ERTCQLQC30, the rest, none of them showed any difference. Very consistent with everything else I'm showing you. So patient C is a challenge, not that we don't love her, but she's in trouble. She has a partial response. Her tumor is homologous recombination, deficiency test negative. We are very worried about it coming back and we do not know what the best maintenance is. She doesn't want active surveillance, but she might have. She could get VEGF inhibitor monotherapy, so that's bevacizumab, that's on label, and we have data. She cannot get VEGF inhibitor, BEV plus PARP, that is off label for HRD test negative. So that is not an option for her, nor does it make sense. She can get PARP inhibitor monotherapy with niraparib. We don't know what's better, bevacizumab or niraparib, because it's not been compared. So those would be the two options that I would be offering to her, and really it comes down you know, to shared decision-making. So in conclusion, I would say PARP inhibitor-related adverse events are generally low-grade and manageable with the exceptions that I talked about quite a bit, mainly hematologic around niraparib with amphoravacetopenia and with all the PARP inhibitors around anemia. So we do have to watch those. But really prompt setting expectations is key. So patients are aware and have mitigation strategies. Prompt identification and management, especially around non-hematologic issues, will help with patient compliance and help them feel better. And then really remembering you can dose interrupt over the course of therapy for a few days and before you dose reduce. And that may really help the patient. You can keep them on the starting dose for as long as possible. Shared decision-making is really important here. I think I've emphasized that through my talk because there's just a lot of places where there's choices to be made and there's not a clear best answer. And so the strategy is really where you can engage with your patient and help them play a role in selecting the therapy based on patient education, and then team-based collaboration and good communication will help them feel like they had control over you know, what their maintenance option was and then their experience on that maintenance selection as well. So really aligning the treatment planning decisions with very patient-centric concerns. What are their goals, preferences? What's their understanding? What's their medical literacy? And how do you address them where they are so they can understand completely what you're talking about are really important so they can have the best outcomes possible and feel like they were part of the process. There's a really nice guide to facilitate shared decision-making. 
that's available to you to download. And with that, I know this was a lot of information and I talked very quickly, but I hope it was interpretable. And thank you so much for watching and joining us and participating in this important educational video. Have a great day. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from GSK, Merck Sharp and Dome, LLC, and AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com access. Thank you for listening.